Oh, good good morning. I've been a pastor now for about 16 years, and when I joined the first staff of the first church I was with, there were other associate pastors on staff there, and one of them, I'll, I'll call him Don, because his name is Don. <laughs> Actually, we nicknamed him Teflon Don, because it seemed like nothing would stick to him. Now, I'm not trying to make you think that he was doing anything wrong or unethical because that wasn't true, but he was an incredible pastor, very gifted, very talented, and one of the nicest men that I've ever worked with. I liked Don, and I still do. To put things in perspective, my first couple of years in ministry were rough at times. I was the outsider, the guy from Southern California who had come to a small town, suburban Pennsylvania. And you know what people are like from California, right? (laughs) So without going into details or rehashing the past, let's just say that at times the road was a little bit bumpy. But then I would look over at my friend Don and it seemed like everything went well for him. He had the Midas touch. I mean, this guy rode a motorcycle up the front row of the church building, the sanctuary, and everybody thought that he was incredible. And I'm telling you, if I had ridden a motorcycle anywhere in that church building, I would have been ridden out of town on a rail. (laughs) To sum things up, I was jealous I was envious and throwing a world-class pity party for myself. I could not rejoice for my friend Don for anything that good that happened to him, either in ministry or even personal, because I was too wrapped up in envy. One of the barriers to being concerned for people is when we envy them. And so today we're going to talk about battling envy. And let's just take a moment to define it. As I was looking over this the last couple of weeks, one of the things that I came to understand is that envy has an element of desire in it. I desire something that I see that somebody else has, and I want that for myself. Now, that doesn't necessarily make you envious, having that desire, Because you could have a desire for something that's really good. I could look at somebody else and see a great relationship between a husband and wife or somebody that has a very close walk with Christ and desire that, and that's not wrong. So here's the other element. The one thing that makes this bad is that there's this desire that is tinged with resentment towards the person who is having things go well for them. So in a sentence, envy is a mingling of a desire for something with the resentment that another person is enjoying it and you are not. Things aren't going so well for you, but things are going well for them, and it just gnaws away at you sometimes. Why does it go so well for that person, and it's not going well for me? Well, there's so many ways that envy can manifest itself in our lives. Perhaps you know somebody who always seems to be making enough money and have an abundance in their, their savings account, and yet you always seem to be about a half a paycheck behind. Or perhaps they were able to just buy a brand new car 
and you're trying to figure out how to keep your 1988 Yugo running. Or perhaps they just bought a really nice big house and you're trying to figure out how to keep your very small, very much in need of repair house standing. Maybe they got to go to Disney World on vacation and you had a staycation again. Or let's make this something that doesn't have to do with money. Let's say that you have a child who has walked away from their faith in God, and all of their children are following God and marrying godly spouses and serving in the church. Or let's make this really worse. Let's say both you and your friend have prodigal children. And it's become something that you two can bond about. You understand each other. You know the heartache that goes with this and sometimes the misplaced guilt that you put on yourself. You pray for each other in ways that nobody else can understand. And then something miraculous happens. Beyond all belief, their child turns their back on sin and comes in repentance to the Lord. And you can't help the way that you're feeling, that you're envious, that their child has repented and yours hasn't. Why their child and not yours? Well, the Bible is full of warnings against envy. One of the uh, famous chapters in the Bible written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Many people call this the love chapter. And it says that love does not envy How can I say that I love somebody, that somebody is my friend, and yet be envious? There are so many opportunities for envy. It's a universal threat to our joy and to our concern for other people. So what I want to do today is we're going to look uh, through our summer in the Psalms. Today we're going to be in Psalm chapter 37. And if you'd like to turn there in your Bible, or, or maybe I'll see your hand light up as your device turns on. We're going to be in Psalm 37. We're looking at this passage to see that God prohibits envy in His Word. We're going to see that there are consequences to giving in to it. And then most importantly, we are going to talk about how to fight envy. And I'm going to begin by assuming that you agree with me that the Bible says don't be envious. But just to make sure, let's look at the very first verse of this psalm. Psalm 37.1 Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. So there it is. It's biblical. Envious is not right. It's against the will of God. But in case you're thinking, well, the end of that verse says, don't be envious of evildoers. Don't be envious of wrongdoers. Your friend, Pastor Don, would not be characterized as an evildoer or a wrongdoer. So is it okay to be envious of somebody who is a Christ follower? Well, it's wrong, period. And and, uh, just to give you a little bit of Theology 101, God never contradicts Himself. The Bible is God's Word, and so the Bible never contradicts itself. We don't see God say one thing in one passage and then turn around and say the opposite thing in another passage. So I'm going to take you to a New Testament book. This is from the Apostle Paul, written to a young pastor named Titus. In chapter 3, verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, 
disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, and here's our word, envy, hated by others and hating one another. Do you see anything, any word in that verse that could be called a positive character trait? Of course not. Foolishness, disobedience, being led astray, being a slave to passions and pleasures, being full of malice and envy. So if none of those things are positive character traits, then obviously envy is not as well. So even though Psalm 37 says to not be envious of evildoers, I believe it is logical and it is a safe assumption to say that envy is wrong, period. We also see in another book in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 5, the book that, or the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, and there is a part in here, two verses, verses 22 and 23, that we often call the fruit of the Spirit. And what Paul says in there is that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now it's very interesting that Paul, just a few verses before that, kind of has his anti-fruit of the Spirit list. And you would think that maybe he would say things like murder and rape and and heinous sins like that. But verse 20 has these things listed. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions... And then in verse 21, he lists envy and then concludes by saying, I warn you that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when we look at this list, these aren't what we would necessarily call the big things. Immoral behavior, impurity, sensuality, all those things that have to do with, with wanting something uh, physically that we should not have. Idolatry, don't just think that's bowing down to uh, an idol or a statue. That's putting anything in your life higher than you place God. enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, basically not being able to get along with other people. And he's not saying if you do any one of these things one time that you're not going to heaven. Because if we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he has given us forgiveness for sins once for all time. But what he is saying is if these things characterize your life, then you probably were never a Christ follower to begin with. If your life is characterized by giving in to sensuality at every turn, if your life is characterized by placing other things higher than God in your life, then you probably never were a follower of Christ. And we can use that same argument. If your life is characterized by envy, you probably are not a follower of Christ. Now, we've seen what envy is, 
We've seen that the Bible condemns it. We've even seen that there are negative consequences to giving into it indefinitely. Now let's look about how to fight it. That's the big issue. And we're going to start again in Psalm 37 and look at and see how David says to fight envy. Now, just a little basic instruction for anything that comes up in your life as as sin, whether it's envy or lying or whatever it may be, the first thing that we need to be doing is getting out our Bible and seeing what God says about what we're doing and about how to combat that. The next thing we need to be doing is praying and asking God's Holy Spirit to work in our lives. So let's look again at Psalm 37 and see what the basic statement is here. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. So there it is. The basic statement is, don't be envious of people. Why? We always like to know the why, don't we? Uh, you tell your kids, or when you were a kid, and your parent tells you, to, uh, don't do that. What's the first question we have? Why? So here's the why in verse 2. For they will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Then verses 3 through 5 tell us what we ought to do instead. Or in other words, what is the opposite of envy? Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord and trust in Him, and He will act. Notice the positive things that you're supposed to put in place of envy in your emotions. Don't have envy. Instead, trust the Lord. Verse 3. Don't envy. Instead, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse 4. Don't envy. Instead, commit your way to the Lord. Verse 5. It should be very clear to us what we're beginning when we are beginning to envy when we are looking at somebody else and we see what they have and we resent them for having it that we are beginning to lose our peace and our contentment in God because see the issue is faith the issue is not my rundown car The issue is not my house that needs repairs and I don't have the money to fix it. The issue is not that I can't go on the vacation I want to go on. The issue is not that I'm not getting recognition at work that I think I deserve. The issue is faith in every one of these situations. I have not trusted God that He will do what He says He will do and that it will be good for me. I want to give you four reasons that believing and trusting in God is better than having envy. We're going to start with verse 2. He says, They will fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. So if you are starting to get envious of some scoundrel that you saw on TV that just won the lottery, won a million dollars, what God is saying to you is, Wait a minute. You don't want to be in his shoes. He's going to wither like a flower. He's going to uh, just dry up. And so are all of his possessions. But what are we told in the New Testament of those who trust in God? In 1 John 2.15 it says, But those who do the will of God abide forever. 
So you can either fade like a, a dying plant or you can abide forever. It all depends on where you're going to put your trust. We see these things repeated in verse 9. For the wicked shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Or again in verse 10, in just a little while the wicked will be no more. Now the second point is found in verse 3. It says, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Now, I, I think this was probably a year ago I shared with you. Um, since Pastor Mark's not here, I'll share it with you again. It'll be our little secret. I'm not a poetry guy. And the Psalms are poetry, right? So I struggle when it comes to the Psalms because I don't necessarily like and don't really understand poetry like a lot of people do. So I thought, well, I'll, uh, as I read the, the end of this verse, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. What does that mean, befriend faithfulness? So I looked it up in a different translation. I've been reading to you out of the, uh, the ESV, the English Standard Version, and I looked this up in the NIV, the New International Version, and to be honest with you, the first three-fourths of the verse are the same. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land. But then instead of saying, and befriend faithfulness, he says, and enjoy safe pasture. Okay, I still don't understand it. But as I look at who wrote this psalm, before David was a king, he was a shepherd. Okay, before I was a pastor, I was a financial analyst. Okay, that still doesn't help me because a financial analyst and a shepherd don't really have a lot in common either. But if I put myself in David's shoes and I try to understand what he was writing from his point of view, maybe I can understand this. Well, the Bible often compares the people of God to sheep. And he very often compares Jesus as our good shepherd. Okay, so if I read this from the point of view of a shepherd and I'm the sheep, then what does enjoying safe pasture mean? Well, safety for a sheep means that I've been protected from predators. Whether it would be uh, somebody who would come and, and steal me from the fold or a, a wolf that would come and, and try to destroy me, I have been protected from predators. Enjoy safe pasture. Well, what is pasture? Well, it, it's made up of grass, right? And what do sheep eat? They eat grass. So what we're being told here is not only do we have protection, but we also have all of the things that we need to keep us alive and healthy. Okay, now this is making a lot more sense. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and he will give you protection and all the things that you need. Okay, it sounds like I can trust God then. I don't need to be envious. What's the third point? This is found in verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, that is, trust in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, that's an amazing verse because as I defined envy, remember, it has that sense of desire in it. I desire something that somebody else has. So the best way for me to fight this is to go to this promise and say, okay, Lord, you made a covenant with me in this verse. You said that if I will delight in you, then you will give me the desires of my heart. 
Now, I don't want you to take this and turn it into a prosperity gospel or a name it and claim it theology where all I have to do is say, this is what I desire. And so if I go to church on Sunday and read my Bible a couple of times during the week and pray before meals, then God, you have to give me the desires of my heart because that's what the verse says. That's not what the verse says. When we read it that way, we have switched it and put the back end into the front end. What it says there in verse 4 is delight yourself in the Lord. It says that first. And then what comes after that, he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, if I am delighting in God, I am trusting in him that he will do what's right for me, he is going to begin to change me into the likeness of his son. That's the ultimate goal for every Christ follower, isn't it? To to look just like Jesus. Let me take you to a parallel passage. This is in uh, Matthew chapter 6. I think you'll be very familiar with this. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Doesn't that sound very similar to Psalm 37.4? The first question we have when we read this verse is, when Jesus says, and all these things will be added to you, what things is He talking about? So let's go back a couple of verses to verse 25 and see what it is he's saying. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? So Jesus is saying, All the things that you need in life, I will give those things to you, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In this passage, we don't even have to look at the order that it's in and say, well, maybe that's just the way they wrote it, but that doesn't necessarily mean one thing is first. Jesus made it really simple for us. He said, the first thing you do is you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So that's the third point. Here's the fourth one. This is found in verses 5 and 6. He says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your vindication as the light and your justice as the noonday. You know who I think of when I read those verses? I think of Joseph. Joseph, who had committed his way to the Lord, even though he was falsely accused of sexual misconduct. And God brought forth Joseph's righteousness as the noonday light. I think of Daniel, who committed his way to the Lord, and even though he was falsely accused of being a traitor to the king of Babylon... God brought forth Daniel's righteousness as the noonday's light. I think of David. After he had been anointed the future king of Israel, but before that had happened, he committed his way to the Lord. And even though King Saul falsely accused him of being a usurper of the throne, God brought forth David's righteousness as the noonday light. Vindication will come. 
We're promised that. It usually does not come in the timing that we want, though. We want vindication to come right away. I'm falsely accused. I want vindication right now. Joseph spent time as a slave and as a prisoner in a foreign land as he waited for vindication. Daniel spent a night in the lion's den with fierce, hungry, man-killing lions as he waited for vindication. David spent 15 years waiting, many of those years on the run from psycho Saul, who was trying to kill him as he waited for vindication. So we've seen that the battle for envy begins with this understanding that it is unbelief that God will do what is right for me and what is best for me. So let me give you some ammunition against that unbelief. Let's look at a familiar story in the Bible that may help you in your battle against envy. This is from uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 6. Jesus has uh, had this crowd following him. They are spiritually hungry. They are not getting fed in the synagogues by their religious leaders. Jesus is teaching, and it is unlike anything they have ever heard before. And so there, these crowds, 5,000 people, 5,000 men come and sit at his feet to listen to him. And he's talking for quite a while, apparently, because they missed lunch. And Jesus looked at them, and he had compassion on them. And so he turns to his disciples, and he says, feed them. And they turn to Jesus and, and basically are saying, with what? They're thinking, how about if we just send them home, and they can eat lunch at home, and then we'll come, have them come back for an evening meeting. How does that sound, Jesus? But what they really said was, we would need 200 denarii worth of bread to feed these people, and it's too late. Now, I did a little bit of research, and very conservatively, that 200 denarii would be at least $10,000. So you can understand why the disciples were saying, listen, Jesus, we don't have $10,000 to feed these people. Now, what did they mean by that last phrase, and it's too late? Well, let's just imagine that Jesus was here teaching us. We're out on the grass here past the parking lot, and it's gone past lunchtime, and we're all hungry, and Jesus has compassion on us, and he tells his disciples, feed them, and they say, we don't have the money. And by the way, even if we went down to Country Fair or Giant Eagle, they don't have $10,000 worth of bread. You have to place that catering order last week, right? So Jesus responds, well, what do you have? Well, one of the disciples had done a little bit of research, and he found a little boy with five barley loaves and two fish. And he's brought this boy up here with him, and he tells Jesus what he has. But he says, what's that among so many? Basically, this little boy had his fish stick Happy Meal, right? And can you imagine that 10-year-old boy standing there listening to the disciple tell Jesus, this is all we have and it's not nearly enough. And I'm thinking if I'm that little boy, well, it's all I've got. You don't need to make me feel bad about it. And by the way, Andrew, what did you bring to the party? And yet that's where we all are. 
We're like those little kids with the five barley loaves and the two fish worth of possessions, talents, look, gifts, money, whatever it is you tend to feel inferior about. And we look around at all these strong, beautiful, talented, rich people who have everything going for them, so we think, and all we have is this happy meal in a situation that calls for $10,000. And Jesus says, give it to me. And he takes it and he prays and he feeds 5,000 men. Now, by the way, that doesn't count the women and the children as well. We're talking about 10, 15, maybe 20,000 people that he fed with five loaves and two fish. And I look at that example and I say, well, maybe then there's hope for my happy meal of talent and finances or whatever. And how many baskets were left over? Twelve, right? We're not told why there were 12, but it's easy to guess why. How many disciples were there? 12. Each one of them, Jesus says, go get a big basket, not a little offering plate basket. Get a great big laundry basket and collect the leftovers. Now you do the math. We started with two fish and five loaves of bread, and now we've got 12 overflowing baskets of food And I think that was a great object lesson to those disciples. I think it shows us that when you give what you don't think you've got enough of, you get back more than you thought you ever dreamed you had in the first place. And don't ask me to repeat that. (laughs) Jesus lives up to the need of the hour. He can take that little amount of talent, money, looks, experience, gifts, whatever you have, and he can multiply it. If you start thinking that your gifts are too small, that you don't have enough for what the need of the hour is, Jesus does live up to the need of the hour. Evangelist D.L. Moody once said, the world has yet to see what could be accomplished by a man wholly consecrated to the Lord. By God's power, I aim to be that man. Let me share with you one last illustration. This is from John chapter 21. And I I know that you know this story, but I doubt that you've ever thought of it in terms of envy. I know I hadn't until I started studying for this. This is uh, happening during the Holy Week. This is before Jesus has been trained, just before then. And Jesus has told the disciples, all of you are going to fall away. And what does the braggart Peter say? Not me. Jesus, maybe all these guys are going to fall away from you, but not me. And what does Jesus say right there in front of all of his friends? He tells them, oh, Peter, before this night is over, you are going to deny me three times. And that's exactly what happened, isn't it? Jesus was arrested. He was taken to the house of the high priest for trial. And Peter had kind of snuck onto the compound, sitting there in the patio area. He just wanted to see what was happening, but he did not want to be identified. He was crushed and he was broken. He saw Jesus there and he denied him publicly three times. 
And I firmly believe that if Jesus had not sought him out after his resurrection, that we never would have heard about Peter again. But Jesus did seek him out. And he tells him in verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked where you would. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish to go. And he said this to show by what death Peter was to glorify God. In other words, he's telling Peter, you're going to be a martyr. And that right after that, Jesus said, follow me. Now, I can just imagine Peter. You know, he's, he's thinking to himself, first of all, Jesus, yeah, I put my foot in my mouth that night, but you put me down in all of my friends, in front of all my friends. I publicly denied you, but I was trying to be secretive about it. And I look over here at my friend John. He describes himself as the one that Jesus loved. What's that all about? And not only did John not deny you three times, he stood at the foot of the cross identifying himself as one of your followers. And now you're telling me, Jesus, that I'm going to be martyred and die this awful death. What about him? And you can just see the envy that's going on in Peter's life. And Jesus said to him, if it is my will that John remains, not just for the rest of his natural life, but until I come, my second coming, what is that to you, Peter? I asked you to follow me. Will you follow me? What's Jesus saying here? I think he's saying that it is real dangerous to compare ourselves or our circumstances. It's real dangerous to compare our gifts. To love is to stop comparing. Jesus is saying, look, don't get all involved in comparing yourself with this other disciple. What I have for John, I have for John. Here's what I have for you, Peter. Me. Isn't that enough? And that's the solution to envy. It's Jesus. He says, follow me. If you are behind me, if you've got me, what do you need to worry about somebody else for? And that was my answer to my envy of Teflon Don. Jesus was telling me, don't compare yourself to Don. If there's any comparing that you need to do, Scott, in your life, it's not with another disciple. It's with who you were before and who you are becoming through the power of my spirit in your life. That's my answer. I need more of Jesus in my life and less of me. It's such a staggering privilege to be a disciple of Jesus Christ that what becomes of other disciples is not of the least importance. And living with that in mind allows me to rejoice when things go well for others and not compare myself, my position, or my possessions with other people.
Father, thank you for these powerful words. But thank you for giving us hope that you will change us, that you've given us not only reason to trust you, but the ability to trust you. Would you please take our lives and make them honoring to you so that we're not comparing ourselves to others and being resentful for what they have, but that instead we are comparing ourselves to what we were before you began this great work in us. And Father, help us also not to compare churches, to not look at our church and say, why aren't we as as big as that church? Why aren't we growing as fast as them? Why can't we have this program that they have? Father, you are enough for us. And so we give our lives to you, and we give our gifts to you. Father, would you take our offerings this morning and use them to make other disciples who will follow you and will also make other disciples. In Jesus' name, amen.